Harvard Divinity School. The Climate of Relationships and Intersectionality, October 4th, 2021.
Good evening. Welcome to Weather Reports, the climate of now. My name is Terry Tempest Williams and I'm writer in residence at the Harvard Divinity School. On behalf of the Center for the Study of World Religions, Religion and Public Life, and the Planetary Health Alliance in cooperation partnership with the Constellation Project, we're so happy that you're here and that you are staying with us on this journey. We acknowledge that the Harvard Divinity School is situated on the traditional and ancestral lands of the Massachusetts people, the original inhabitants of what we now call Boston and Cambridge. We respect the people of the Massachusetts tribe, past and present, and honor the land itself, which remains sacred to the Massachusetts tribe. We've just witnessed a tea pouring with tea practitioner Brian Kerbis of Theosophy about the diversity found in healthy communities. And the garden, his pot of flowers is, is apt for this week's weather report, the climate of relationships, uh, the intersectionality of racial justice, environmental justice in the midst of climate chaos. The Book of Tea reminds us that tea embodies the mystery of mutual charity, a tender attempt to accomplish something possible in this impossible thing we know as life. Last week, we focused on sacred land protection with Bernadette Dementiev, the executive director of the Gwich'in Steering Committee. I'm still carrying her phrase, we are caribou people. We hold the caribou's heart within ours and the caribou holds our hearts within theirs. That mutuality, that sense of kinship continues to resonate in me. She spoke of grief, unadorned and unsentimental, the grief of her son who had been murdered and the grief of the threatened birthing grounds of the porcupine caribou herd in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge by oil and gas development. She said in the Arctic regarding climate crisis, it's all hands on deck. Native and non-native people alike must come together. So tonight is a continuation of this inclusive conversation and why reparations to native and African-American communities matter. This also includes our reparations to the land itself due to centuries of the violence of colonialization, capitalism and greed. I wanna share with you a story. A few months ago, I met with the Kiowa writer and Scott Mamaday in Santa Fe at his home. He spoke of mother earth. She is feeling things, Scott said, and she is expressing her anger that she is not happy. He spoke about, quote, our being on this side of the nick of time. I paused at this light shift of a familiar phase. It wasn't in the nick of time, but the nick of time, as if it would be seen by future generations as a conscious notch made on the trunk of a millennial tree. Perhaps what is needed now, Scott said, is atonement. For us to atone for the damage we have done to the earth. What do you mean, I asked. What I mean is that we may have to go back before the Indian Wars, before the Buffalo were killed to remember our relationship to the earth. He paused and then said, I'm thinking about these things, what gestures could arise. Mamaday referenced that in order to understand atonement, it might require going back before the Buffalo, 
before the buffalo were slaughtered and remember what followed. He wrote, when the great herds of buffalo drifted like a vast tide of rainwater over the green plains, it was a wonderful thing to see. But there came a day when the land was strewn with the flame and rotting remains of those innumerable animals slain for sport or for nothing but their hides. The coyote was grieved and went hungry, and it was the human spirit that hungered most. It was a time of profound shame. And the worst of all was that the killers knew no shame. They moved on, careless, having left a deep wound on the earth. We were ashamed, but the earth does not want shame. It wants love." Unquote. Could it be that what Mama Day is calling for is acts of love preceded by acts of remembering when we, the children of colonizers, quote, moved on, careless, having left a deep wound, unquote, that is never closed. I am wanting to atone. Are you? To atone is to remember what we have done. To atone is to grieve. To atone is to lift up our arms in bold entreaty, to utter an earnest or humble plea, to cry out, to petition for our forgiveness and call for a change of heart. Bronte Valise and Morgan Curtis are calling for this change of heart. They are taking these concerns of atonement and reparation seriously through their radical imaginations and deep work of prophetic listening to the earth, their ancestors, to each other and their communities. I introduce them tonight as my teachers. And I mean that in our world that is blessedly in the process of decomposing and regenerating from the wounds of colonization. I use these verbs because this work is active in its spiritual struggle, in its grief, in its healing, and in its embodied joy. Morgan Curtis has been guided by the call to transmute the social and ecological legacy of her colonizer and enslaver ancestors. Morgan is dedicated to working with her fellow people with inherited wealth and class privilege toward redistribution, atonement, and repair of ancestral harms. Through her work, she's helping to catalyze the healing of broken relationships while facilitating the surrender of power and control so that resources can flow towards social, environmental, and economic justice. She is in the process of redistributing 100% of her inherited wealth and 50% of her income to primarily Black and Indigenous-led organizations and land projects. I met Morgan a decade ago as a student, when she was a student at Dartmouth College, who began the divestment campaign there as a sophomore. She spent the following eight years as an organizer, part of Sustain US, who played a significant role of resistance at COP21 at the Paris Accord in 2015. And she continued as a youth activist, educator in climate and social justice music movements. She's currently a Master of Divinity student at the Harvard Divinity School, focused on the spiritual dimension of reparations work. Joanna Macy has been a mentor for Morgan and Bronte in the grief work necessary. And we honor Joanna tonight, who is listening in our audience. Morgan's a member of Canticle Farm, a multiracial, interfaith, cross-class, intergenerational, intentional community. 
in the Sean Ohlone territory, Oakland, California. It's important to know that she and Bronte lived in community at Canticle Farms together, hence their sisterhood. Bronte Feliz is a force of nature. Their voice sings in tandem with the birds they love. Their greatness of spirit at work and rest is guided by the call that black wellness is the antithesis to state violence. They are a black Latinx transdisciplinary artist, designer, trickster, educator, and wake worker. Their eco-social art praxis lives at the intersection of black feminist placemaking and abolitionist theologies and environmental regeneration through weaving earth center for relational education. And I was moved to learn of their four pillars, earth intimacy, co-liberation, embodiment, and prayerful action. Bronte is also the creative director of Led to Life, where guns have been transformed into shovels and stars, alchemical tools that intend to deconstruct the violences forged by environmental racism through radical imagination. Welcome, Morgan and Bronte. It's a dream to be with you both as we circle the square tonight and think about the intersectionality of climate justice. Thank you for having us, Terry. Mm -hmm. It's so wonderful to see you. What's the weather report from where you're situated? Mm -hmm. let's, let's go with you and Morgan. Uh, well, I can answer this however I want to. Is that, is that the <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, the weather where I am is um, picking up the heat today. I want to begin with like the weather. The weather's picking up the heat. It's um, it's been warm again, so uh, that brings up that kind of like um, the kind of a field of anxiety around fire in uh, where I am in Kashaya Pomo territory in Northern California. Um, I feel the heat picking up in my body and the kind of um, presence and attention living near the possibility of fire, what, that, what kind of attention that draws me into. So that's my weather. That's my weather at the moment. Mm. Mm. I'm also feeling the heat today. It's dripping down my back. I'm not far south of Bronte and what's called Oakland, Lishanaloni territory. And it's so dry here. I've been away for a few months and I hoped that it would have rained by the time I got back that some of the plants that are dear to me would have been quenched a little in their thirst, but not yet. Still waiting for that turn of the seasons. Thank you. I'm interested in how you two became sisters. Because clearly, when you're together, you light up. Mm. <laughs> well, I was going to say that we met at Sister Moon and Stars, but at a home at Kentucle Farm um, that's in the lineage of St. Francis of Assisi's medical work around hospitality in the lineage of the Catholic Workers' Union um, initiated by Ann Simmons Bucher and Terry Simmons Bucher. 
And, but then I remember we actually met in the spiritual ecology fellowship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were two of an amazing group of young people who were brought together around those questions of where does spirit meet ecology and how do we show up to those questions um, thrown into siblinghood in that sort of way. And I think we all share a love of Anne. I know um, in those days when we were crossing the line at the Nevada test site, Anne was a great leader in the tradition of the Catholic workers. So I greet you as members of, of the same community through time. Mm-hmm. Bronte, you have brought with you a clip from Between Starshine and Clay. And I'm wondering, you know, I think for our audience, this will give us a visual manifestation of, of the work that you're doing and the work that you and Morgan share. What, what can you tell us about this piece before we see it to give us a, a proper context? Yeah, thank you. Um, you're about to see about a fifth of a short film. So three minutes of a 15 minute film um, directed by Med Aldao and creative directed by myself and produced by Led to Life, um, the collective that I get to host my art practice and prayer in. And this evening um, is situated in January, 2019 on Martin Luther King Day where Led to Life uh, closed out an annual march and rally to reclaim King's radical legacy hosted by Anti-Police Terror Project in Oakland, Ohlone Territory. Anti-Police Terror Project is committed to demilitarizing police terrorism in Oakland and holding um, police terrorism accountable and also reimagining what community safety looks like. And this evening uh, led to life close out that march in ceremony to honor the 10th anniversary of Oscar Grant's murder, which his murder really transformed a lot of the surveillance or returning the gaze on police violence. Um, And this place we were in was Oakland City Hall in front of also known as Oscar Grant Plaza and we melted guns into molds that reflected the constellations that were above Oscar Grant the evening he was murdered 10 years prior at Fruitvale Station and families impacted by police brutality and intercommunal gun violence were invited to cast prophecy into the stars of Oakland free of violence and process um, guns in a to the furnace to be transformed so you'll see the ending clip of that project. Thank you. Will I become you again, sweet soil? Ocean, will I be like you, full and everywhere?
keep our breath flowing so our joy can come home. We undam our chest. Our joy, like water, like salmon, got perfect memory. It's always on its way. We always on our way. We always in the way. My people are free. My people are free. My people are free. Hands on the earth. Bronte, Morgan, what do we remember? I remember that night watching that gun in that moment you saw melt, melt away and the feeling in my body of like, what if this is it? Like, what if this is the moment where we turn the corner away from legacies of white supremacy and extraction? I felt the prophecy shaking through me. I felt like I would wake up the next morning with like the news plastered on the front page of every major paper. Like it's over, <laughs> we've made it, let's go forward. Yeah, I remember that evening um, speaking to this obsidian mirror that I, I placed onto the altar of that ceremony and asking for that mirror to absorb the memories of the evening. And after the ceremony, the um, lights were really bright on the altar space and where the um, gun was melting. And I was in an interview for when we thought this film would be something more documentary kind of style. Like we'd have a, one version that was sort of more short doc and um, this person started to clap from the behind the light. So I couldn't see them. Like, it's like an amphitheater at Oakland City Hall. So you just hear this like <laughs> slow clapping from the audience. And this brother came forward, black man. And um, he started to tell me how he didn't he wasn't fucking with MLK and like, what did he do for our community? But he liked this. And he was showing me, he processed to show me, he was tatted with, uh, it said Oaktown 510 with the, uh, with the big oak tree. And he would told me how he was criminalized as a teenager um, for using a BB gun 
that was seen as a gun and how he couldn't be armed. And during this interaction, I dropped the um, mirror and we, it shattered and we picked up the shards together and um, we went to huge elder oak that kind of overlooks this, this, everything else is plastered by concrete and there's just this huge oak if you've been over by 12th street in Oakland. Um, and we just started digging together and we <laughs> placed the shards into the ground and we closed it up. And I know there was something happening at another level with Fred that night um, that I don't have words for, but it's the image that I remember that came in that moment. Is that an example of, I mean, Morgan mentioned prophecy that it was happening. You know, you speak to prophecy coming out of community, not just one person. Is that an example? Can you talk more about what, what the prophecy, um, the prophetic listening is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that evening, you know, I remember at the end of that evening, I asked, I was giving acknowledgements and I asked if um, there was anyone I forgot to thank. And a, maybe like a three-year-old black child came up and grabbed the mic and began to speak in this way that was nonlinear. Um, and it was these things like, and the police and the guns and the shovels. And then the police came to my house and my dad. And it was just this like stream of consciousness and the audience began to laugh. And this black child was like, stop laughing at me. Like, stop it. And it was this kind of moment, you know, where because we've been so divorced from ceremony, ceremonial space and ceremonial attention that when um, spirits start to come forth or things start to come out of people that we're able to recognize and say, we did not have, we have not heard from a child yet. We haven't heard from a baby and the generation who's inheriting this toxic earth. And what is it to have created the conditions for a prophetic environment? Um, that evening there was, there was all of the conditions mapped out for like all of the logistics it required, if you can imagine to have a gun melt in front of Oakland City Hall, multiple guns. Um, all of the insurance and all of the stress and all of that. But then to think about, we didn't know really what was gonna happen that night, but just setting up space for miracles to enter. And I remember Kat Brooks from Anti-Police Terror Project, one of the co-founders, um, she is about to speak two minutes before, it's her turn to go speak uh, after mothers have spoken who've lost their children to um, police brutality and gun violence, don't need to do this in front of all of these people and have chosen to offer, even in the irreconcilable, chosen to offer a vision for something different to speak from that place to me is prophecy. And then also Kat Brooks was like, oh my God, it's my time to speak, who's so prolific and has a radio station and like everyone who knows Kat Brooks is like a orator and was like what do I say and um I said well we're saying it as though it is at that time Kat Brooks was almost about to become the mayor of Oakland and came in second at that time it's kind of the people's mayor 
And she got up there and she just did this refrain that was so powerful um, that's in that film where she's just saying, you know, I say unto you, um, there are no jails or prisons or as we call them, uh, American concentra concentration camps, Ashe. And she's asking people to then um, follow up with her in, a, in affirming that agreement and declaring our liberation as though it is. And that evening was about the recuperating the black feminist prophetic lineages and traditions that back from Harriet Tubman, people were saying, Harriet Tubman was saying in the present, my people are free. Um, and Dr. Coco Selassie, she uses the language of a prophetic grammar to speak as though things and I think that's what we set up that evening and what Morgan is even speaking to of the next day, wondering what did shift and kind of how do we walk towards what we realized there as like a memory. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, talk about both of you, what, what role ceremony has, what place ritual has and its relationship to spirituality, direct action, and appropriation. Hmm. Yes, okay, you threw in that last one, Terry. Just a small <laughs> question, Terry. But I mean, I think we're all thinking about this because if we are in this prophetic vision of trying to change the way things are into hmm. the way things can be, there is that that landmine of appropriation. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear how you both talk about that because it's important to your work. Thanks, Terry. I'm not gonna share this story, but I just wanna say that I'm holding in my hands this rock and it comes from a ceremony. It comes from a space where I was working with others to grieve the founding sins of this nation and working with my fellow descendants around what does it really take to feel what was done in our name, what was done to create privileges and structures that would carry us into the future and not others. And I know that work is needed and for me, for my people, for white people, it's quiet work. It's done like in the sides and in private, but it's the healing work that we have to do to be able to show up in a good way. And as a descendant of Puritans, my people believed that grief was a lack of faith in God. And I see that shunning of grief as part of the foundational makeup of what this country became and so no doubt we've not grieved those founding sins no doubt that land theft genocide enslavement are still woven into the policies structures actions behaviors of this country and its people because me and my people are yet to really let it in we're yet to let our hearts break open and, and so that ceremony that you enacted and embraced was part of that 
acknowledgement of grief and transformation. Yeah. Yeah, it's like as long as we turn away from the harm, we will repeat it. And so it takes turning and looking and walking towards and letting us letting it break us open, letting it not let us get out of bed in the morning, letting it throw us down on the earth to cry. I know that's what it takes to get back up again with joy and belief in our capacity to, to feel and, and heal together. Bronte, where do you find the seeds of ceremony and ritual that come out of your body? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I, I'm deeply informed by um, growing up in Black Baptist Church space and um, what I think about what Ashan Crawley calls um, Black Pente- has a text called Black Pentecostal Breath. Um, whereas maybe growing up, like I wouldn't have noticed um, the ways that just revival and mysticism and gospel and enchantment and knowing that creator was alive as has really informed my relationship to um, coming to the way that also that revival space and that re-enchantment space that I grew up around um, draws into the public space. Um, I think so much of having grown up in the, in a, black mega church in Atlanta and starting to have those kind of shifts in my spirit, even as a preteen of like, wait, what's going on here? And this is not, what is going on? Just, you know, the ways that um, capitalism disturbs um, some of the most sacred um, traditions and parts of ourselves but I also noticed the ways that there was something deeply um, fugitive that was encoded in the church space that got lost. And so that's some of what I, my work is about recuperating. Why were people falling out? We, we will laugh if somebody's running around shaking, falling out, or, um, you know, some of the, or speaking in tongues, these kind of practices that are deeply um, African. And, some of my work is about kind of blurring, um, blurring and repairing um, that that space where Black people were not we were not allowed to grieve and commemorate our dead during enslavement. We had to do that in hiding. We could not have public space to mourn. Um, if people are working twenty-hour days, when do you have time to grieve? When do you have time to um, cry out and let that shit move. And it brings me into how much I learned and was socialized to um, keep my grief away. And you don't need to, we don't have time to cry. We'll cry, you know, you'll sleep when you're dead, all of these things. So ceremony for me, recuperating that space is about, uh, you know, I think of my friend, Trisha Hersey, who runs the Nat Ministry talking about our inheritance is already here for us. This eschatological kind of offering that, we already went through these apocalypses. We've already, we were already on the other side. We are owed our heaven already. And that's my work with Led to Life is about offering that space to be like, we don't agree 
with your, we don't agree with what is going on. And if you're not going to commemorate what you have done, then we're going to take those things, even if it's performative and um, alchemize them for you on behalf of you. So we can get on with our lives and with our beauty and with caring for the earth and showing up. So um, in that Bible tradition that you're talking about, the, the, the church you're referencing, did this come out of, I'm thinking of Isaiah chapter two, verse 14, God shall judge between the nations and shall decide for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is not a vision. And it strikes me with the work that you're both doing and in your communities that this is not a vision, that it is a direct action. And I'm interested, um, mindful of our time, which is, I wish we had all night. Um, both of you are working with language and transforming language. The reckoning turning into an awakening. And I'm wondering if, if you could both talk about how language has been part of your um, transformation. Morgan, I, I knew you, you know, when you were 20 um, as a climate activist. And now I see what your path is of giving 100% of your inherited wealth away in the name of reparations. That just moves me to tears. And I, that can't be easy with, with your family, with your father. And I'm wondering how, what language have you cultivated to, to make this possible um, through ceremony, ritual, and, and the spoken word? And then, um, Bronte, you know, how you've made reparations a part of your Center for Relational Education. I'd love you to both talk about that. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Terry. I don't know if my dad is ever going to watch this recording, but he just recently sent me an email with the subject line, some thoughts on language. And there's so much there. And I think for, for white people, the, the stage in the journey that we're at gets projected onto whatever language shows up. Like, I feel so much how when I say, like, I'm descended from people that enslaved other people, and I feel a moral, spiritual call to reckoning, to repair, to healing, like that for me is a beautiful thing. That's like turning pain into something else it's like the best work that I could possibly be showing up for and yet my fellow people can so often hear that as an attack and so it's not it's not the words it's like what we project onto them and I know it's my work to like hold folks as we reckon with those feelings like oh wow this thing that just got said you took it personally like how do we be in this together how do we help you unravel from your attachments to the way things are to power safety comfort control like what if there's actually something bigger or more beautiful than that in our healing in our belonging in our remembering of who we were before. Um, and how did you make that 
um, that leap from climate activism to reparations. I'm grateful that my teacher, Joanna Macy, is here tonight. She says something about in, in a time of great unraveling, we have two choices to turn on each other or to turn towards each other. And we have to come together. Like the earth is literally asking us like, hey, humans, figure, figure it out together. And if we're gonna be on an unraveling, heating, storming planet together, to come together requires answering those long, long standing overdue calls for reparations in material ways, transfer of land, transfer of wealth, power, opportunity, decision-making, all those things like thoroughly redistributing so that we're truly living on this earth together. And only then can, yeah, we turn towards the crisis together and not just use it as another excuse to divide and oppress and destroy one another. Thank you. So beautifully said. Bronte, how, are, how is language um, a form of constellations for you? Um, yeah, I was thinking about how um, the other day I forgot about this tattoo that I have on my throat. Um, this one with the moon and the little symbol. Um, well, because I can't really see it <laughs> throughout the day, so I forgot it was there. And I was remembering why I got this um, and thinking about the, the little kind of like four symbol is the alchemical symbol for decomposition. And I was, I remember thinking about the moon as this little crucible um, and decomposition or also nigredo or the blackening is the first step in the alchemical process, like in medieval alchemy. Um, and I think of the ways that um, though I, I like have released kind of grieving what I can't retrieve, you know, about like languages that I would have maybe spoken under other terms um, as a descendant of um, black enslaved folks in this country. I also um, am really committed to a project of um, fucking with English and taking it back and speaking it better than, <laughs> um, you know, what, whoever gave it to me. Um, and I love, I really, I'm grateful for, um, just black poetics and like black people, um, utilizing this language to change space and time. And I really believe in that in like the prophetic space of um, what it is to find the flexibility of English and to be fluent enough to actually rearrange its colonial lineages. Um, and I just wanted to say one thing about the appropriation and ceremony that, um, 
I'm really curious. I don't, I know we don't have time to answer it fully, but just I'm curious what we're willing to, I feel like people might avoid ceremony in relationship to appropriation. Um, and I'm curious what happens when we take the risks to intuit what comes to us um, and be willing to be held accountable and be in humility and be in relationship to do ceremony as we, as we try and gather what has been lost. Um, and to also think about what is emerging and to be, to, be, to be careful, but to take a risk is what I'm saying, because I think it's important that we, this time is requiring us to move from a very different place. And um, I, think that, I think that prayer and fire and these really simple elements um, and water, we need them. So I'm, I invite people who are scared about appropriation to take a risk if you're willing to be held accountable, if, it, if something is appropriative. Um, yeah. Well, I think that what you shared with us in that film, um, there is a human element with earth, fire, water, air that speaks to all of us as human beings. And I think back to Bernadette when she was saying it's all hands on deck and we are emerging and new stories are emerging. And it strikes me that both you and Morgan um, are changing the stories, changing the language, changing the terms, and all of that requires great risk and great heart. Um, I wanna close just with a, a quote by Alexis Pauline with a question, and then it's my pleasure to um, introduce Melissa Wood Bartholomew, who is a standing grace. Um, in Undrowned, Alexis Pauline Gum, she writes, how would we spend our time if we realized that the conflicts we experience now urgently demand that we create a more loving world as soon as possible? Mm -hmm. I love you both. And um, we have a lifetime to continue this conversation. And I'm so glad that the audience has been able to feel the power of both of you um, as leaders of your generation and teachers for those of us of another. It's my great pleasure to um, introduce Melissa Wood Bartholomew, Associate Dean of Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging at the Harvard Divinity School. Um, there's so much I could say about Melissa. She's one of the most deeply spiritually centered human beings I know. She lives by the spirit, she lives by prayer. I've been the beneficiaries of her prayers. All of us at the Div School have been nurtured by her wisdom. Her intellect is searing as evident by an undergraduate and law degree from Howard University, where she practiced public law for a decade and served as assistant attorney general in Seattle. She went on to complete a master of divinity at the Harvard Divinity School and then a master's degree in social work and just completed her PhD from Boston College. Um, what I can say is Melissa is a healing grace an educator, a nurturer, a peacemaker, and a mother, and a dear friend. Melissa, the time is yours to respond and continue the deepening of this conversation. I love you. Love you too, Siri, thank you. And thank you so much, Ronte and Morgan. It's really hard to
I feel like what you have offered, we need to create space for us to take in. So I'm called to just pause for a moment so that we can breathe. I am calling in from Cambridge, the ancestral land of the Massachusetts tribe. It is an honor and a privilege to be in conversation. Terry, I thank you for the invitation. And I thank you for the opportunity and blessing to meet both Morgan and Bronte. I look forward to meeting you in person, Bronte. It's a pleasure to meet you in person recently, Morgan. I've been given the task to respond and my spirit is full. And all that you have shared is so powerful. I appreciate the way in which you are doing your work and showing up in the world. When I spoke to Terry earlier today about the clip from the film that she was going to share, Bronte, the film Between Stars Shining Clay, I immediately knew Lucille Clifton um, was the reference. So I called Lucille Clifton into the Zoom room. And her poem that reminds us celebrates us and to remember that every day something tried to kill me and has failed. So I appreciate that we are rooted in this work of healing and that is acknowledged that the work is spiritual and the work is about us being related to the land and to each other and to the divine. We can't do it on our own, we cannot do it through the intellect alone. We cannot get through it through reading and writing and analyzing and theorizing and arguing. We have got to be faithful to what we knew in the beginning, the way that we were. Mm. I appreciate that you both, Ponte and Morgan, know that, that you are being guided by the ancestors, that you're being guided by spirit, mm. and that you're fierce mm. and unapologetic. It's hard to listen and listen and try to write and think about questions and not be present. So I try to balance being present. And I have asked the spirit before and after enduring to guide me. And this is where I'm led because I really want to hear, I want to give you both space to offer more. I really loved hearing your reflections about that night in Oakland when you burned the guns and made the structure. Um, and the question, Bronte, that you offered, how do we walk towards what we realize as a memory? You talked about prophecy and the action, the practice of calling, you know, it's from the scripture says, call those things that are not as though they are. We call those things that are not as though we are. And Harriet, as you said, Tubman said, we are free. So you invited people there that day to say, we are free. We are, we are without prisons. And so, Bronte, you said, how do we walk towards what we realized as a memory? And thinking about the walk and how the walk is different for people of color, um, different for the descendants of Africans who were enslaved in this country, um, as you indicated that you are, and I am myself, different for people who identify as whites and descendants of colonizers, Morgan, as you have identified. So I would love for both of you to speak a little bit about the walk 
speak more about because you've been talking about what this walk looks like. What is the walk towards what we realize as a memory? What is the walk towards the prophetic vision? And Bronte, you highlighted so beautifully. I'm also rooted in the Baptist tradition. You said something coded in the church space that has gotten lost. We haven't had the opportunity to grieve. And I wholeheartedly uh, agree with you on that. We haven't had time. We haven't had the energy. And we haven't been directed to. We haven't been given the tools. So part of that walking involves breathing and healing. I want you to say more about that and what you're doing. And then Morgan, the walk you talked about, you know, you literally are walking the talk. A hundred percent of your inherited wealth being redistributed, 50% of your income. That is real walk for white folk. So I want you to say more about that, what it looks like, and how you help people to wrap their minds around the need to separate themselves from the generational wealth that they've been gifted. So I turn it back to you. Melissa. (laughs) Wow. Um, Thank you for being so present. It sounds like you weren't distracted. And um, I'm I'm just grateful for um, the affirmation of your question um, and the and the deep listening that you just offered back through mm-hmm. question. Um, I think about I share this story often, so it's just one of those ones that is important um, that has to keep getting told. But um, in 2018, when Led to Life was headed to Atlanta, where I'm from, um, Muskogee, Cherokee Territory, to uh, host commemorative ceremonies in honor of the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, I was on the phone with one of my elders, Orlin Bishop, who called at a moment of like um, deep spiritual crisis in um, stepping into this work as a young person, start where it was beginning as an art practice and kind of something small emerging out of the fellowship we spoke to, the Spiritual Ecology Fellowship Morgan and I were in. And then it turning into something where it was like, whoa, this is way out of my league and I'm not initiated to do what this work is actually requiring as it kind of had its own life and its own spirit of what it was asking for once you stepped into that crucible of, which is not really about the memetics of melting the gun, um, but all of the other, all all, everything else that that's about, um, everything else that has yet to be commemorated, everything else that has yet to be grieved and what it is when you start to open up that space. It was really scary and I needed guidance and, one of our elders, Orlin Bishop, called and at that moment, <laughs> which he's like this. And um, I told him that I was about to get on the train to Memphis before I came to Atlanta so that I could be at the Lorray Motel and just be at the site, sit with the site where Dr. King had been assassinated because I felt like, why are what is it that Dr. King in this, this space time is what is calling us here? Um, and that his spirit was working on me and um, this work. And Orlin said, um, 
And I said, I don't know why I'm taking the train. Like I got to go slow from Oakland to Memphis. I got to take the train. And I, if I could, I would walk. And he said, um, that's because your astral body is already there. And um, your physical body is now going to meet what your astral body has already decided. And that's what the act of marching is. The act of marching was the prophetic intuition to say, we know what I have for me is over there. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but, and then processing, processing in public, the act and gesture of walking through space to be an intervention um, and to say like, we know that it's here, even if you can't see that it's here. Um, so that's some of some of the walk for me is about that knowing that I may not get there in my lifetime, um, but to create these pockets and moments of hospitality where we feel it and it changes us in a way that we can't return from. Um, and some of that walking is also like, for me, I'm learning, I cannot do this work not connected to source. Um, I have to, I kind of got, uh, retroactively initiated. <laughs> so it's been this like, what is the retroactive attending that I have to do to get right with spirit and to Morgan and I both have fasting practices and to go out and pray and be on the mountain and listen um, and to give my hunger as offering. I saw one of my elders, Gigi Coyle on the call, who's one of my elders who's helped me in that work. And Orlin has also helped me in that work. Um, yeah, to lay my body out on the earth. That's that's some of the walk um, for me. And also some of the walk is about being in collaboration with the perpetrators of violence um, and their and that ceremonial work. So that's in passing it to you, Morgan, I just want to give thanks for what it's been to be in this prayer of ritual reparations and to shift also how led to life is even being funded and to think about the ways that um, that that release can also support um, space for both descendants of both of our lineages to have space for grieving and shifting and healing. Yeah, passing it to you. Thank you so much, Bronte. And Melissa for the questions and reflections. I'm grateful for you be making the the walk a geographical one. Something I've been really feeling recently is just the way that it has been gifted to be in my body so much more deeply the last few years, the awareness of being on stolen land and to not to no longer think that I have the right to go anywhere I want as my people did for so long, as I did, ending up living so far from home. And to move so much more slowly, to wait for invitation, to wait to be asked to show up, to wait to be asked to speak. So much of this journey has just been about unlearning the things I was told to be and told to do. And had an instinct to share a, a little reading. It's just a paragraph of a letter that I wrote to my descendants 
that I think speaks to the invitation I have to my fellow people who might be grappling with ancestral legacies, whether financial or spiritual or anywhere else. So little excerpt. Dear descendants, I'm writing to you as I want you to know of the decisions we are making now and why, so that you might understand your place in this story. You may have bloodlines and ancestors of culture, of places not my own, but I write to you as one of solely European descent, a settler for 13 generations now on Turtle Island. Not so long ago, in 2020, an uprising swept America. Never forget this country was named for love, ame, of riches, rica, and our ancestors were amongst its founders. And the truth of the racial violence that began and sustains this so-called nation was revealed more fully to those who previously weren't willing to look and see. It gave me a chance, an opening with our family to begin the process of transmuting our legacy. The money that came down through our family, gathered by generations of bankers, lawyers, captains of ships and industry, has finally been returned to the people and lands from which it was taken. It is my prayer that you are still connected to the black and indigenous villages into which it flowed, that you are shaped by their leadership and that you still find ways to mutually support one another as the world heats and unravels. These villages are refugia of knowledge and wisdom places where intergenerational trauma was able to be witnessed and healed, where children grew into elders that guided their people onwards. These are your inheritance. These are your family's legacy. Sure. Keep thinking. First of all, thank you both for what you just offered, and I and I keep thinking about Ronte, what you shared. The astral body was already there. The reminder that as a people, and particularly people descended of Africans who were enslaved in this country, the astral body, our ancestors projected. The future. They were able to see, even though they wouldn't get there, they were able to see freedom. And so what the, the work that you both are articulating so, so concretely is the way to project, the way to allow the body to catch up to the future. And I just so appreciate how concrete the steps are. And Morgan, because of because the work is so important, the work of reparations and redistribution of wealth is so important, um, I just invite you to share any thoughts, reflections, um, any words to help those who may be struggling with how to separate themselves from the actual hold on the security, the false security, sense of security that generational wealth provides. 
and maybe share, you know, a challenge or a story that reflects, you know, the real struggle with that. Because I'm sure it was not easy and is not easy for you to do what, you, what you're doing. Um, so do you have an offering to share? Thanks, Melissa. I think a lot of people would agree that we have an epidemic of loneliness and individualism in this country and elsewhere impacted by capitalism right now. And wealth amplifies that. I'm thinking recently of someone I was speaking to who comes from a very wealthy lineage and had never asked a friend to look after her child, had only ever met that need through hiring someone. And there's a profound loss when we meet all of our needs with money, where when we're sick, we hire someone to come care for us. We need to get somewhere, we hire a driver. We need food, we buy it at a restaurant. And there's a profound remembering of our belonging to our human community and our earth when we choose to not have money be our primary strategy to meet our deepest needs in life. And it's profoundly freeing to build relationships of interdependence with community, with the earth, and to be in that practice of slowly unwinding ourselves from how we've been taught to take care of ourselves by this economic system and colonial legacy. So funnily enough, giving away all one's money hastens that process, which won't be everyone's path, but it's, it's a joy. And the threshold into the work, absolutely is hard and scary and brings up all those most profound questions. And that's what's brought me to divinity school to be with this work of redistribution because they're not logistical questions, they're spiritual questions of really, who do I want to be? Who do I belong to? Who do I serve? And yeah, there's joy <laughs> on the other side. Thank you. And that takes me back to um, Bronte, you shared part of the walk, the spiritual work of the walk, the, the prayer, the fasting. I love hearing that you and Morgan are fasting partners. I'm also one who employs the, the spiritual practice of fasting and prayer and um, believe wholeheartedly in its profound. Um, effects, and we can't we can't do it without it. So I'd love for you to share more about that, um, and particularly because, in light of what Morgan has shared, I mean the work of actually letting go of wealth, letting go of capitalism, um, this anti-racism, anti-oppression, all of this is spiritual. It's a spiritual practice. So share more. I invite you to share more about why it's so and what your practice looks like and the, uh, the, the, the effects of the, the, press, the fasting, the prayer and the fasting. Thank you. Um, yeah. love, love hearing you, Morgan. It's just like, well, just 
really hilarious and amazing um the devotion and the like just the the just the it's so prophetic yeah and I just I feel what you what you offered what you're offering through that work so deeply and as always it just it blesses me so much and inspires me so much and it is also my work um in that um, I feel as a descendant of folks who were dispossessed from capitalism and accumulating general wealth, generation, general wealth, generational wealth, there's this, um, there is a deep wound there of, uh, of longing. There's been a deep wound and I, that I saw in the church that I grew up in of um, trying to repair and remedy all of the, um, the trauma through accumulation of wealth. And I'm always struck by a comment that one of my uh, thesis advisors in undergraduate at Brandeis, Jasmine Johnson, who's a professor, I believe at UPenn now in the Black Studies Department. And um, Dr. Johnson asked me after my thesis um, defense, her first question was, what will Blackness look like after capitalism in relationship to what I had written? And I was so floored and just like, whoa, that's, you know, oh, that's what is, that's, that's so that's a question I've been walking towards. Um, and in, in kind of, in consort with that question is um, Sonia Sanchez in a poem called Black Rhetoric has a line that says, um, who will take Black is beautiful and make more of it than Black capitalism? And there is something I had had to also spiritually divest from in relationship to the way capitalism is the cosmology we are all underneath in the atmosphere that we are breathing. Um, and to constantly kind of come to a pray, place um, where I'm choosing to fast from my relationship, from my diet with capitalism and to, to, to constantly prayerfully kind of disentangle myself from, those, from that stronghold um, because it is, it's, it has a, it's a, it's a spirit that's, that mounts us and that, informs choices that we make. I think often about Toni Morrison writing about how we shouldn't go, racism is a distraction and the, you know, the real, the real, it's a, it's a symptom of a real disease, which is greed and our relationship to greed. And so fasting for me this summer was about checking into um, sitting with my own inheritances um, what has been unfinished in my lineage? What is, what wasn't met? Um, and how do I, with my life, um, not just be clear, be a clear vessel so I can receive what I am here to do and to not, um, there are aches in me for other lives that I wanted to live and ways I could be making that bread and making that check and all of that. And, um, you know, sometimes I'm like, I could be making that money. But it's also like, what does that serve? And is, is my life as a being, is the way that I'm moving ecological and is the way that I live um, serving 
the place that I'm um, in. So fasting this summer was so powerful to go and pray specifically around something my late grandfather who passed last year shared with me of where he talked about um, that he, he used this phrase in a conversation we had where he said, it's not because I'm stupid. I had to refresh my memory that I was black. Um, and he lived his life in this lifetime on this plane as someone who was read as schizophrenic and disabled. Um, and I love, I've been just, my whole past year since he passed has been about refreshing my memory. And refreshing my memory that I'm black feels like what is, who am I outside of capitalism? What does it mean for my um, ontology if it's not related to this? And um, I went to go pray for my Sabbath and my Sabbath and the earth Sabbath and my, the way that I've been working, which has sneakily actually um, in the nonprofit industrial complex injured me over this past year. I was very injured spiritually and physically through being on the computer, talking about God and talking about ceremony and preparing and doing all of the logistics to get these things done, which as you can see, it's a lot of logistics to get these ceremonies happening. Um, and to be like, what am I actually doing? And so fasting is about this year, I'm just like, what, what does this work look like when it's about source and when it's not about um, trying to bring folks to, trying to the meme of the gun to the shovel. It's so, it's so that of like kind of not quite at source, but in front of it, you know? And so how do we actually move that apart to be in the real alchemy? And right now I'm really thinking with my partner about fire ecology and the land that we're living in in Kashaya Pomo territory and how to be with the source fire and how to just be close with God and creator in that way. Beautiful, beautiful. There's so, thank you. Thank you both. And there's so much you just shared, Bonte, that I would love to spend more time with. I wanna, I love the fact that you, I wanna lift up, you said there are aches in me of the other lives that I could have led. And that amplifies the work of fasting to separate ourselves from the stronghold of capitalism, all the ways in which we are related wrongly to things and needing to get right back and be in right relationship with the source, with ourselves, with each other, with the land. So I appreciate what you have shared, all that you have offered, Bonte. I appreciate Morgan, all that you have shared. I really appreciate the your, your obedience and response to the call to share that letter, um, the excerpt to your ancestors. Um, thank you for sharing that and thank you for your work. I love the way you both walk. I love the way you both walk. Keep walking. Keep walking, keep walking. Thank you for this time to be continued. Terry. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa, so grateful. Your presences, thank you. Melissa, Morgan, Bronte, 
for the deepening of these ideas, for all you have brought to us tonight to ponder, reflect and act upon this question. What do we spiritually need to divest from? May we hold that as we all are changing the story, changing the language, changing the heart, transforming grief into love, shame into joy, and capitalistic enslavement into service. Let us be filled by Bronte's words, well, as a prayer and a calling from our ancestors. Well, the church said, well, we got to be well. Well, a pitted place. Well, a seed. Well, the echo. Well, so deep. Mark says, Black wellness is the most radical act against state violence. And we say, well, we become so well, so well that we are the well, a reservoir of joy, absorbing all light and laughter this skin made of soil can sip on. White supposed to reflect all light that enters it. All these reflections and they still can't see themselves? But we gonna keep on being mirror. We gonna keep on keeping on. Cause we gotta be well. So well that we are the well. We learn about the sovereignty of our prayer. Ceremony as a place for the unhomed. Where black ain't a vacuum. Ain't the shadow of whiteness, but its own grace. We so black now. We done decompose darkness as evil out our mouths. We love the night so much that we became the night. We love the unknown so much that they ain't never gonna find us. Our laughter made us fugitives under the spell of numbness. And we say, well, the prophecy has already been written. No need to conjure nothing new. Tubman already let us know. My people are free. My people are free. My people are free. And Alexis said to us, may we continue to breathe in the presence of our freedom. So we inhale, trust it is already here. Nothing future about our freedom. Cause my people are free. Right in the here and now, my people are free. So if we already free, all we got to do is lay down everything that makes us unfree. All we got to do is be well.
Sponsor, Harvard Divinity School, The Constellation Project, The Center for the Study of World Religions, Religion and Public Life, Theosophy Tees, The Planetary Health Alliance. Copyright 2021, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.